0: My name is Richard Hill. Welcome to the fifth edition of the Monthly Labor Report, in which we talk about the latest news on labor actions, imminent and ongoing strikes and contract negotiations taking place nationally and in some cases even globally. We'll also probe more deeply into the structural economic issues underlying the recent upsurge in militant labor action and organizing. As usual, we'll do all this with the help of Michael Zweig, an economist, labor historian, professor emeritus at the University of New York at Stony Brook, and author of many articles and books, including What's Class Got to Do With It? American Society in the 21st Century, The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, and his just released Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, and that is published by PM Press. Well, Michael, this being the first show of the new year, it's probably incumbent on us to do a year-end review, and this has been a momentous year, so maybe we should talk about some of the big bullet points that have happened in 2023, and maybe you can kick us off with referring to some of those, and we can go into some depth on those.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me, and thank you for putting this uh, series together. Uh, 2023 really did have a, a big upsurge in labor militants and in labor organization, and it really has percolated very broadly throughout the country. People know about it, people think about it, people reflect on it, and workers are paying attention. Uh, I guess the, the, the biggest, well, the, I mean, 2023 had so many big ones. Uh, there was the UAW strike, which for the first time they struck, the union struck all three companies at the same time. And for the first time, they didn't strike every plant in every company. They, they were very selective. And they won very big victories. They won very, very big gains in wages, in, jo- in job security, and in uh, expanding their coverage of uh, collective bargaining into the battery manufacturing that's controlled by the big three companies. So that was all very, very powerful and very good. The Teamsters took on uh, UPS, and they really didn't have to go on strike, but they sure did get ready. They had those practice pickets going on all over the country, and it was a very powerful show of, of uh, force that... Uh, The Teamsters were able to pull off and they backed uh, UPS down on a whole range of issues uh, from the treatment of part time workers to wages and uh, safety conditions and a number of other things. The Screen Actors Guild and the writers jointly for the first time in, I don't know, 40, 60 years uh, went out together and they again won some very big uh, victories and showed Uh, together with the UAW, that it's possible to negotiate technology. The introduction and the implications of technology and new technology for workers, very, very important victories uh, that I'm sure will get picked up by other unions around the country. Uh, Towards the end of 2023, Starbucks decided as a national chain that they were, in fact, now going to start negotiating with all 250 or 300 stores that actually have voted for a union they're not stonewalling getting to the bargaining table what happens at the table we'll see but uh starbucks is uh advancing towards contracts in, in these stores all over the country and it's not just big companies like uh Reisler and or now uh Stellantis or general motors but you know one of the talks i gave about my book was out in uh, portland oregon in December at uh, Powell's Bookstore, the workers at Powell's are are represented by a union, by the uh, International Longshore uh, Warehouse Workers Union. And they were without a contract, and they had a strike, and they were really in very tense and very difficult negotiations with the owners of Powell's Bookstore. And they won. They won a good contract after having turned down one then they came back to the table they got more and the workers accepted it and it was a very important uh victory the machinists were out in wichita uh 6,000 machinists won some stuff from spirit aero systems uh, wages and other conditions and of employment out in in wichita so this is not just in big cities it's not just on the coasts this is in in, in in wichita kansas this is in chicago this is all over the country where UPS operates and where they were having those practice strikes. Uh, Sean uh, Fain, who's the president of the UAW, is an electrician from Kokomo, Indiana. You know, these are just plain working people who have uh, had enough and they are smart and they're oriented towards what class divisions there are in the society. And they've made uh, very serious gains and shown very powerful examples for 2023 as we come into 2024. Of course, 2024 has a lot of stuff in store for it, too.
0: Mm. Well, speaking of Sean Fein, a really important development in, in 2023 going into 2024 is the fact that many important centers of labor organizing and militancy are now coming out in support of an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And when UAW actually came out and decided to make that pronouncement. It was Sean Fain who did it, and he said, as union members, we must fight for all workers. And what he meant by that was that the rights of oppressed people internationally and and in all kinds of situations really should be part of the struggle. Can you reflect on that and, and just talk about how widespread is this pretty amazing development in terms of organized labor in the United States? taking a position, such a strong position on a foreign policy issue, an issue of war and peace.
1: Well, early in the discussions in the labor movement, as the war in Gaza really intensified and got to be more and more obviously unacceptable, the uh, labor movement started to pay attention. And I was involved in the early stages of that and drafting a, 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 a petition and a statement calling for a ceasefire. And uh, that statement originated in UE, United Electrical Workers, and in UFCW, United Food and Commercial Workers, Local 3,000, which is a local of over 50,000 people in the Northwest, and grocery store workers. And it's something which we have to fight out in the labor movement. I was involved in a similar way with the beginnings of U.S. labor against the war in the Iraq war where the labor movement took very strong stands, and the AFL-CIO even opposed that war in Iraq, the first time that the labor movement officially uh, opposed an ongoing U.S. war. And I think that uh, this petition that's going around that's now been signed by over 150 locals and internationals like uh, uh, United Electrical Workers, UE, or the uh, UAW, It's a very powerful discussion, and it's a very sharp debate inside the labor movement even now, as it was when we were doing uh, the Iraq war issues. Is this a labor issue? Why should we be paying attention to this? This will only divide us, and we need all the unity we need for these collective bargaining contract fights. The fact that the labor movement is increasingly paying attention to the the war in Gaza and calling for a ceasefire is something which has echoes coming back to U.S. labor against the war and its opposition to the war in, U.S. war in Iraq. So I think that what is happening is that people are just more and more appalled and are taking it up as a question because the labor movement is about more than just wages and terms and conditions. The labor movement is about what kind of a society do we have? What's right and what's wrong for the projection of power And as the labor movement is looking at this uh, uh, Israeli assault on Gaza, more and more people are saying, well, that's collective punishment. Yes, what Hamas did on October 7th was a terrible thing. Yes, Hamas was in violation of international law and and, uh, a violation of the rules of war. That's all true. And it was an unforgivable attack on October 7th. But that doesn't mean that Israel has the right to collective punishment of two million Gazans going on now for over three months. Uh, and I think that the labor movement, people in the labor movement are recognizing that that's wrong, that that is an attack on working people, it's an attack on uh, people who only want to make a living and just uh, live a, a life of peace, which is the overwhelming majority of the people of Gaza. So. The labor movement is now coming, as Sean Fain and others have said, to realize that uh, we in the labor movement have an obligation to working people everywhere, and not only on issues of work, but issues of war and peace, issues of housing, issues of medical care. The labor movement takes on and should take on that whole broad range of social concerns because those are all concerns for working people
0: you know speaking of the labor movement encompassing the broad range of issues i just wonder if we might begin to articulate you know the notion of democracy as being more than just the ability to to go once every 2 years and cast your ballot and if that uh, impinged upon by authoritarian tactics that's that's a bad thing and that's anti-democratic but i i just wonder if if it's time for us to broaden our definition of democracy to include those things, such as racial justice, such as economic equity, and the ability of working people, all people to function and be creative human beings.
1: I think that's all true. And I think those are all things that we need to do. It is the case that Uh, President Biden talks about a number of those things. But we have to pull together those issues together into one coherent, broad movement in which each piece of it, whether it's environmental or racial justice or economic justice or labor rights, whatever it is, each one has to consciously be aware of all the other ones and take strength and take comfort from and take lessons from all the other movements while we're also paying attention to our own specific issues. And I think that that task is something which builds a united front across all these issues in a progressive direction, and it's time for people to begin to put that really together across issues in an organized, consistent way over time within the Democratic Party through primaries to make that broader agenda that you're talking about The core of what it is that we're about.
0: You know, speaking of the threat of authoritarianism and fascism and the role of labor in uh, opposing and and creating a united front, Bill Fletcher, I heard him on Democracy Now!, I guess last week, decries the, quote, cowardice of many labor leaders in confronting MAGA and in not taking a pro worker stance against Trump. He says that. They are fearful that white males are going to run out of the union halls screaming if leadership starts dealing with race, gender, and the issue of fascism. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the broad swath of labor leadership and their position on MAGA and the threat of fascism.
1: I think there is a reluctance uh, in a lot of the labor leadership in the United States, in AFL-CIO unions to uh, a reluctance to take on Donald Trump because they are afraid that that's going to alienate their base within the unions. And I think that there is definitely some reluctance about that. And there's a reluctance also, for example, to get involved on Gaza or to get involved in Iraq when that was going on, because people were afraid that there were, you know, people who wanted to fight those wars and wanted to pursue those uh, hostilities. And so why should we as a union take it up? Because it just divides our members. Well, that's true. There is a fear about that. And I think that the only way to overcome that fear is just to actually go do it. And more and more unions are facing the necessity of addressing the fascist threats, but also the policy threats that come from uh, the Republican Party these days, not just Trump. That's a whole section of the ruling class, a whole section of the country that is going in that direction. And we really have to take it on. And I think that more and more, as the stress comes from the bottom up, more union leaders will take take that on. And I think that they'll also be led by people like Sean Fain and people, uh, you know, the leadership of, some of these other unions, Sarah Nelson and all the flight attendants and O'Brien at the uh, uh, Teamsters and so on. Those are serious uh, people who I think are going to lead or help lead that der- the direction that you're talking about here.
0: You know, I heard an interesting interview with Alex Press, who is a labor reporter with Jacobin Magazine. She suggests that there is a through line starting well, maybe not starting with, but at least marked by Occupy Wall Street, that movement that was crested in 2011, through the Bernie Sanders for president campaigns of 2016 and 2020, including the Red State teacher revolts, and of course the very important Chicago teacher strike, and leading up to the recent upsurge in labor organizing and the UAW and writers and actors strike victories. She suggests a gradual accretion of working class consciousness leading to the rebirth of radical labor action that we see now. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this, particularly her point that the frequently dismissed Occupy movement, which didn't seem to produce any concrete issues and gains, that that actually ignited a spark that led to a class conscious action that we're seeing now.
1: Well, let's first of all say that the Occupy movement didn't just fizzle out. It was crushed. It was crushed in an organized way with documented uh, conference calls with Justice Department officials. This is uh, in 2011. So this is in the uh, Obama administration. Justice Department officials working with the mayors and police uh, and public security forces in major cities around the country where Occupy was happening, where the encampments existed. And they all strategized and figured out an organized campaign to crush this movement. And it was from the Justice Department into the uh, police uh, authorities in New York, in San Francisco, in Oakland, in Seattle, and all these different cities. So that was crushed. Now, it is true that uh, it didn't last long, but it did last long in identifying this 1%, 99% formulation. That was extremely powerful and extremely opened the door to an extremely progressive uh, developments in American political and economic life. Because what they were pointing out was that there was this enormous inequalities and that those inequalities in income and in wealth were unjustified and were offensive and led to the kinds of problems in policy that the powerful had to control policies which were disadvantageous to this uh, 99%. And that really made a very big difference that Bernie picked up when he starts talking about the billionaire class and talks about how the divisions in the society, the income inequality is unacceptable. And I think there's no doubt that there was a direct through line uh, to the Sanders campaign. And from the Sanders campaign, uh, some opening to the door of what might socialism look like, democratic socialism, the word socialism became part of the lexicon of young people and movement activists for the first time in 70 years, 80 years in the United States. It's really quite something. I don't know who it was who first came up with the idea sitting in some tent somewhere in 2011. Let's call it the 1% and 99%. But whoever came up with that really deserves a medal because that did... Opened the door to a whole rearrangement rear of political forces in this country that we're now living with, and certainly the Sanders campaign and the uh, the formulations that that Bernie put forward were very important in that development. But so too were the material circumstances of life, where particularly with COVID uh, and uh, with the uh, understanding that yeah, we have essential workers, but we can also treat essential workers like just pieces of garbage when all of a sudden we don't have to worry about wearing a mask. So who are these people? Well, that registered with people. That that asymmetry of power and that disrespect and the the foul treatment that uh, healthcare workers get by being short-staffed, it's just a terrible life experience. That's also generating in connection with this idea of of the billionaire class and the the working class uh, that's generating this subsurge that we're dealing with now. And I think that's a very healthy sign.
0: I wonder if you could comment on this notion that there is an accretion of awareness and a developing consciousness that over the course of a decade or two leads to the ultimate transformation of awareness and consciousness into a sense of class unity and class conflict, I guess you could say. Well, we'll see
1: how this develops in terms of the content of that class consciousness. There is certainly a consciousness of hostility between ordinary people and the people who run the country, that those are not the same people, and that we have to do something about that by bringing other people into power in political terms and uh, economic terms through organizing. Unions have uh, not been as uh, well-respected and popular in this country for the last 60 years compared to where, where union recognition or, or the, the desire for unions uh, is very broad spread in the United States now. Almost, so 70% of American people want unions and support unions. Only 10% are in unions. So it's like for every worker that's in a union, six are not who want to be. And that's not because the unions aren't trying. The unions are trying to organize, but increasingly having real power uh, arrayed against them. And in that struggle, people are learning. And I think that that learning is part of what I'm trying to do with the writing that I do and the speaking that I do and what so many other people are about. And where this develops we'll have to see, but we can just only try to build it. And of course you build it jointly by studying and thinking about things and also doing things. And that relationship between theory and practice is I think what is driving this upsurge in labor consciousness, labor militants. And uh, that's, uh, that's where we are. Finally, Michael,
0: maybe you could give a projection about what might be in store for us as class conscious people and also just on the late, on the broad labor front coming in 2024.
1: I think that there's really two arenas that we can talk about where what's coming up is going to be important. One is in the collective bargaining agreements that are coming up that are, you know, involved thousands or tens of thousands of workers. So there's 30,000 machinists that work for Boeing, that make uh, planes in Everett, Washington. Well, their contract is coming up this year. Well, Boeing, as we know, just now with the plane that just had its doors or or part of its fuselage blow out, uh, Boeing, (laughs) Boeing is on the defensive and the working class is on the rise. So it's going to be interesting to see what the machinists can do at Boeing. AT&T, Daimler Tru- uh, Truck down in North Carolina, to you know, thousands of workers, uh, the postal workers, the rural letter carriers. There's a lot of labor contracts that are coming up this year that I think are going to be uh, test points. And of course, what happens in 2024 with Starbucks is going to be really interesting and important because uh, Starbucks as a company, has decided that they're going to negotiate for the first time. So we'll see where that goes. But then there's a second arena that we talked about earlier, which is this arena of broader social concern. And what is the labor movement going to do for those broader social questions? And in particular, right now, it's interesting to see what's going on about Gaza. Because there, again, we have this petition going around and we have Uh, Locals and central labor councils around the country, now over 150 of them, signing on to a resolution for a ceasefire. That's going to only grow as long as that conflict uh, continues in its current form. And I think as it grows on the ground, more and more higher levels, including union presidents like Sean Fain, like Carl Rosen at at, uh, UE, United Electrical Workers, more and more central Uh, figures in the labor movement are going to be drawn into opposition and taking on these broader questions. I I think that we're going to see that also in some collective bargaining agreements. The teachers, for example, negotiating to make sure that the schools are available for public use in uh, in the evenings or for uh, programs, for community programs, not just for their students but the, the schools should become uh, uh, community assets. Well, those, that's a collective bargaining question that the teachers are bringing in that influences the society around them as a whole. And I think more and more unions are gonna be finding ways to do that, to link their work with the work of their social uh, movement patriot, compatriots in other parts of their communities. So I think those are the two things to watch. Collective bargaining, but also this what's going on around broader social questions and the labor movement's willingness to step forward around those and help shape policy and help shape public uh, awareness.
0: Thank you, Michael. Another great conversation. The monthly labor report will be uh, back on the first Tuesday of February. It is posted on WPCAN's SoundCloud page, it is also posted at Between the Lines. And once again, Michael, I want to thank you very much for being with us this month.
1: Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks a lot for doing this, uh, Richard, and we'll be in touch.
0: Yes, indeed.